We are talking about talking. We are speaking about speech. The Bible has a lot to say about the use of our tongue and how we talk to one another and, uh, and the things that we say uh, can either be a source of blessing or they can be a source of poison for the people around us. We desire to be people who bless each other and bless the people around us because of the way we speak. We want to be people of knowledge, wisdom, encouragement, and blessing rather than people uh, who continually slash and burn with the things that we say. And so that change is what has been on our hearts and minds over the last several weeks. This morning, uh, I was thinking about something that started to happen in the 1960s. Um, I was thinking about the early advocates of LSD. Timothy Leary was one of those advocates. He was a psychologist from Harvard University, and he began to advocate that people use LSD because he basically was saying it's, it's good for you. It's going to change your whole outlook on life. And uh, he, he felt that it was, and many of the advocates for it felt that it was a, a broadening thing. It would help bring peace on earth if everybody could have their horizons broadened as much as Timothy O'Leary felt. Uh, Timothy Leary, I don't know if he was Irish. Uh, Timothy Leary had his horizons broadened. Uh, so he, he wanted this so much that... Uh, other activists in the movement, and maybe he himself, I don't know, but they were conspiring for a while to dump LSD in the municipal wells of American cities. Because if you can get into the well, and if you can, uh, can taint that, and if you can put LSD in there, then everybody is going to experience this trip, and uh, it's, it's going to be good, and it will bring peace on earth that way. In any case, much the same principle applies here, where uh, when we talk about what comes out of our mouth, if you poison the well, the heart, then what comes out of our mouth is going to reflect that. And many times, the way we talk about speech and saying something in a winsome, persuasive, encouraging way, we're talking about it more from the point of view of, um, you know, uh, saying the right words, uh, doing the right kinds of things, uh, having the right attitude, using the right body language. And what we're seeing from the book of Proverbs is you can have all of those things. Your speech can be full of nice phrases. Your body language can be perfect. The tone of your voice can be perfect. But if your heart is poisoned, what comes out of that well is tainted and will poison the people around you. So uh, the, the idea we're looking at this morning is the idea of restraint. You have uh, on, your, on your bulletin outline a picture of a dam. A dam's job is to hold back a whole bunch of water so that it doesn't come cascading down through a canyon and, uh, and wreck and flood and ruin. Our emotions in the wells of our hearts 
can often spill out in what we say. And there needs to be something holding that flood back. There needs to be a restraint on our feelings so that we can say what is just, what is going to bless people, what is encouraging, and what is right. And we're going to talk about that this morning. And we're, we're talking about this really from the point of view that um, uh, our whole society is saying the opposite of what Proverbs is saying. Our whole society is saying, express yourself. Say what's on your mind. Uh, pour out your feelings. Be authentic. Be sincere. And let that flood go out because that's who you really are and that's what people need to hear. And what Proverbs is saying this morning is, not so much. Or maybe, how's that working for you? When you tear down the restraint on your emotions and you let those words just pour out of you, when you let that happen... What happens to your relationships? I think we can all predict what happens there. Barriers come up. Abuse pours out. Fighting starts to happen. And we don't gain ground. We lose ground with each other. Instead of being more unified, more understanding, more empathetic, instead we're angry, hurt, wounded, withdrawn, and resentful. And so the proverb we're looking at this morning, chapter 15, verse 1, is very simple. It's also very famous. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So you've got, um, you've got a, a couple of, of things operating here. I want to look at three things with you when we, as we turn our attention to the emotions that are inside of us in a stressful situation. So if we look at uh, or imagine the situation that uh, Solomon is talking about here, this is a situation of conflict. There's obviously some kind of disagreement behind this proverb. And... Um, uh, there's, there's a situation in which wrath is coming at you. And someone is, is maybe making accusations against you or complaining at you or, uh, or abusing other people uh, in your hearing. And the anger is just pouring out and pouring out. And the question is, what are we going to do about this? How do we resolve a situation with this kind of conflict? When those conflicts are happening in our conversations, in our households, in our businesses, then uh, I think what we find is that our emotions start to get stirred up. One of the things I start to feel when people are tossing anger at me is fear. What's going to happen here? Uh, How am I going to resolve this relationship? How are we going to move forward here? How can I get this person calmed down? Are, are they going to say even more hurtful things than they just said to me at this point? 
And uh, so it, in these conflict situations, our emotions are going up and the emotions of the person talking to us and sending wrath in our direction, expressing this anger to us, all of the emotions are spiraling out of control. The first thing that Solomon observes in the first line of this proverb is a soft answer turns away wrath. In a conflict situation, when you bring calm to bear, when you speak softly when wrath is coming at you, when, in other words, you're under control, then the situation starts to calm down. The temperature gets lowered. Instead of heating up, it cools down. Instead of anger flaring, people pull back, get control of their emotions, and start to talk in a more reasonable kind of way. Um, one time, uh, I was, uh, when I was a, a teenager, I was actually going into surgery, and I was in the hallway with the anesthesiologist and he had just given me some kind of pre-sleep medication. I, have, I obviously don't know anything about what this involves, but he had gotten me prepped for the anesthesia I was going to receive to go under. I was sitting on the gurney, uh, about ready to go into surgery, and I felt this tightness coming into my body in various places, all up and down my back, and it was like all of my muscles were tensing involuntarily. I couldn't do anything about it. And then I had some trouble breathing. So that was a little worrisome. Uh, so I started to say to the anesthesiologist, there's something wrong. I can't breathe. I can't move. Something Something is off. What's happening? And I was starting to panic. So the anesthesiologist said, Oh no! What are we going to do? And started running down the hallway, <laughs> shouting at nurses. And is, is this what happened? No. No, I'm making this up. Uh, no. He took this... <laughs> you thought he would do that? What hospital you guys go to? I don't know. He took out this manila folder and he opened it up and set it on my chest. So I'm like this and, he's, and he starts reading. He's turning pages and, huh. Uh-huh. And in the meantime, I'm still not getting any better. It's getting tighter and tighter. And I'm on the verge of panic, and one of my uh, prompts to panic is, you're not doing anything about this. You're thumbing through a bunch of papers in a manila folder on my chest. How is this helpful? You know, so there's, there's that. But then all of a sudden, he, he's just unflappable. He closes the folder, and he says, I think I know what the problem is. This should, uh, should deal with this situation. He gave me, I don't know what he gave me. He gave me some kind of antidote right into the, the IV there. It all relaxed and I could breathe and it all went away. I was having a reaction to the medication. But he needed to figure out what 
was causing the reaction, and he needed time to do that. He understood what was happening, and he wasn't going to let it get out of control. So he remained calm. You know what it did? It made me calm. Well, if he's not flipping out about this, I, I guess no matter how uncomfortable this is, he's got this. He can handle this, and I can trust him. Why? Because he's calm. If he had lost control, I would have panicked. That's the way life is. Airline pilots have cultivated a way of talking. Tom Wolfe talks about this in The Right Stuff. He says, you know that southern drawl of the airline pilot when he comes, and this is your captain, I hope you're having a pleasant flight, we're going to have a little turbulence here in a few minutes and, and just uh, wanted, wanted to let you know that I'm turning on the uh, fasten your seatbelt sign and so we'll be through this in about 15 minutes or so but just, uh, just wanted to let you know that thank you for flying the friendly skies over and out. Now if he gets on the intercom and says, flight attendants, get in your seats! What's going to happen in the cabin? It's pandemonium, right? You can't do that. So he's calm, and he's got a southern accent, whether it's real or not. He's got it, and it's just, it's just going to smooth everything over. We're just putting a little molasses on all of this, and it's going to be fine. And in the meantime, every, everything's going every which way, but nobody's really worried through the turbulence and the wind shear and all of that stuff because, oh, he's got it. He flies every day. He's, he understands all of this. He's calm, and then everybody else is calm. Or if they're not, they're keeping a lid on it. A soft answer turns away wrath, Solomon says. So here's this principle. Whatever you're feeling in a conflict, you put a dam over that flood of emotion. You hold those waters back, and then you, you give that soft answer that does, not, that does not express the tone, the emotion of what you're feeling. You hold that back. Instead, you choose to say something that is going to lower the temperature on the situation. And it restores calm and control. If you're in customer service, this is what you do. If you're uh, in any kind of emergency uh, situation, this is what you do. We all have protocols for handling these things. Um, so that is what Solomon is talking about here. Now, here's... The second line here that contrasts the first in chapter 15 and verse 1. It's about inciting or provoking or, in other language, making things a lot worse. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to take a tense situation and raise the temperature, make it more volatile, and make the conflict seem a lot worse than it actually is, just put 
more edge in your voice. Just let some of that anger out. Express the real you in that situation. And watch what happens. It starts to spiral. And it gets hotter and hotter. And anger gets stirred up more and more and more. When I was a teenager, I uh, was in a church meeting listening to what was going on. And I, I really have no idea why I was there. I, I guess we, we went to most everything at church, and so meetings included. And at this particular meeting, there was a conflict between the choir director and the senior pastor. Already, you know that this is going to be a terrible meeting, just by the fact that the choir director and the senior pastor are kind of at loggerheads. Well, the choir director had assembled all of her friends and supporters, and they were all at the meeting, and so it's a church meeting you're supposed to open in prayer. So one of her supporters started to pray. I will never forget this my whole life. I don't remember what he said in the prayer. I remember his tone of voice. I remember, and in fact, I can still hear it. I, I remember the anger and bitterness in his voice as he was praying that God would lead this meeting. And... And I do recall some of the things about what he was praying. It was one of these wonderful prayers that have an edge to it, where there are these, these little knives poking out of phrases in the prayer. And um, so here is this angry man praying to God in the body of Christ, and his words are sharp. And, and have this, this provocative, inciting edge to them. It sticks in my mind and, and it, it uh, is really burned there because I didn't understand what the fight was about, but I understood anger when I heard it. And it sticks in my mind as one of the most disgraceful things I've ever seen because by the end of that prayer which let's pause here and just remember what prayer is supposed to do. It's supposed to express our dependency on God. The prayer is not a newspaper editorial. This is not the place where you kind of express your opinion and put God's name on it. This is where the body of Christ bows, at least in their hearts, before God and says, your will be done, because that's what our Savior did in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When he was going to the cross. So, that's what prayer is. By the end of this man's prayer, the whole choir director party was girded for battle. They were ready to go. And anybody on the other side was equally girded for battle, defensive, angry, resentful. You, can, you just know how that meeting went. It was a very bad meeting. Um, what Solomon is describing here is this dynamic when you're putting 
the pressure of your emotions into what you say with the purpose of punishing the person who is listening to you. A harsh answer stirs up anger. Why? Because that's wrong. It's sinful for us to do this. It's abusive. It's destructive. Here I'm thinking about a meeting that happened decades ago, back in the 1980s, and it's still there with me, and I can still hear this man's voice. I'm sure that uh, all of us here have tapes that are playing in our minds of angry people talking at us and expressing, um, expressing the full heat of what they feel at us in order to inflict that pain and to make us feel something like what they feel. So Solomon is saying, if you want to stir up anger, just do that. Just go right ahead and express what you really feel. But if you want to calm the situation down, if you want to lower the temperature, then give the soft answer and that will do the trick. What does that require? It requires a heart that is not tainted by selfishness, self-regard, bigotry, hatred against other people. It requires a heart that is not poisoned so that when you draw out of that well, you're drawing pure things and right things come out. This simply requires self-control. We love the fact that the fruit of the Spirit starts with love. We love the fact that the fruit of the Spirit continues with joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest. You know where it ends? Self-control. Oops. Because all of those words can turn into the things that we want other people to do in relation to us. We want other people to be loving, kind, peaceful, patient with us. We we want all of that directed toward us. But self-control, that's not so abstract, is it? That's saying... You, Rayleigh, you have to control your tongue. And you have to restrain the emotions in your heart so that you do not end up abusing the people who listen to you and who you're talking to. In other words, Proverbs 15.1 is famous It is often quoted, and it is one of the most often ignored verses in the Bible. Because our whole society says to Proverbs 15.1, No, no, I'm going to say what I feel. And I'm going to make sure that everyone in the room feels what I feel. Because I have that right. And our society is reaping the harvest of bitterness, rancor, hostility, and even murder because of this kind of ethic. Be yourself. Say what you feel. Be authentic. So let's consider the wisdom in this proverb. I want to make a a distinction that might be helpful. When I'm talking to someone who is wise, 
I find this strange thing in what they say. I find that a wise, godly person does not use words to relieve their emotions. They don't use words, in other words, as uh, letting off steam. There's all this pressure building inside of them, and so there's this escape valve called language and words, and they just let those words shoot at everyone who's listening to relieve the pressure that is inside of themselves. Wise, godly people do not do that because they realize, as I've come to learn, that um, words cannot relieve your emotions. They can feed them. You can get yourself worked up real fast by talking about something. And the more you express rancor, bitterness, anger, all of these kinds of things, the more angry you get. Have you ever noticed this about uh, when you get started talking about something, you just you get wound tighter and tighter and tighter. The wise, godly person does not use words to relieve emotions. They use words to express what emotions they have. Now think about that. In, if you're trying to relieve your emotions, then you are swimming in your anger or your bitterness or whatever it may be, and you're just shooting that out at the other person, seeking relief from that pressure. But if you're, if you're going to express what those emotions are, what do you have to do? You have to get outside of them, look at them, and say, I am angry about this. This situation, this conflict, this disagreement, what you said, did, whatever it may be, this is affecting me emotionally. And when you step back and you say that, all of a sudden, you're not shooting at them you're, in a sense, revealing what's going on inside your mind. There's a good reason why we don't want to talk to each other this way and say, I am angry about this. There's a good reason why we don't do that. It's vulnerable. Because what can the person then come back and say? Well, you shouldn't be angry about this. You shouldn't, you're responsible for your own feelings, and so forth. But the thing is, if you build this discipline of saying, this is what I'm feeling, I'm backing away from my own emotions, and that dam is there restraining them, and in this conflict, I'm going to tell you what is behind the dam, but I'm not going to tear the dam down, try saying that five times fast. I'm not going to tear it down to release that so that it floods over you. I'm just going to have a conversation with you about what I'm going through here and what we are going through together. You see, the posture there is no longer where you've got a target on the person you're talking to. Now, you're shoulder to shoulder with that person and you together are working on a problem. And you, you both focus on that problem and uh, the target is outside of you. This is something of the dynamic that Solomon is describing here. The person who can step back from what he or she is feeling and give that soft answer. 
that person is going to turn wrath away. Why? Because the other person realizes, I don't have to put pressure on you. I don't have to beat you up. I don't have to, to exaggerate what I'm saying in order to get through to you. I can just talk to you. And the minute you realize that, everything kind of calms down and the conversation moves forward. But the person who cannot do that, who uses words for relief, will give that harsh word, they will stir up anger, and it will get worse and worse and worse. Verbal abuse, which we talk about a lot, we experience a lot, Verbal abuse boils down to basically one thing. Words twisted from the purpose God intended them for. God intended words to communicate. But when we're abusing people, we twist words and use them to relieve our own emotions. And so part of what we're saying is it doesn't work it won't relieve your emotions. It'll make them worse. And two, in the situation itself, the conflict will get worse when we use words in that fashion. Now, let's uh, tackle what goes on in our worldview as Americans coming from where we come from and believing what we believe about life and about ourselves our worldview is absolutely opposed to this verse because we don't want any kind of self-restraint. We want everything around us to adapt to what we feel and we think we have that right. And so when Scripture comes in and says, well, newsflash, you don't have the right to expect the world to adapt to what you feel. The world is not going to do that and... It wouldn't be especially good for you or for the people around you if it did actually do that. So we've got a, a real conflict here between what the scriptures are telling us and what our society is telling us, and to, to a certain extent, the worldview that we've inherited, what that is telling us. So three confrontations about what I'm just going to call delusions in our thinking. We are deluded about three things that we have adopted as core principles for how we're going to speak to one another. Here we go. Delusion number one. Sincerity is the best thing in every situation. You're just supposed to be sincere. Be who you really are. Be authentic. And sincerity is the best thing. The the ultimate bad thing is not to be who you really are. So, let's look at verse 2. Just to get a sense of how deeply the scriptures are in conflict with that principle of ours. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. They open up that spigot and out comes foolishness, ignorance, hatred, bigotry, poison, 
All of that stuff is just spewing out because that's what's down there. They, the, the, we are authentically being ourselves when we are fools. This was a hard realization for me, as I'm sure it is a hard realization for you, that when I am being a fool, I am being authentic. That's who I sincerely am. Um, and we've got another verse here, uh, verse 7. Take a look at that, chapter 15. Same kind of contrast. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Why? Because when I'm, a be- when I'm being a fool, I am swimming in my emotions. I am in my own head. That's what I want to put out there. And being in that condition... What I say is just pouring out the folly that I am swimming in. And that's authentically who I am. If I want to be something different, then I have to get out of the emotions, not swim in them, but look at them and actually admit what I am feeling. Jealousy, fear, resentment, greed, anger, these kinds of things. The minute we say, I am feeling resentful, we are humbling ourselves. And so the, the, uh, the thing that is required here is what I'm going to call a higher sincerity, a higher authenticity. And that higher sincerity is the one that says, I'm going to back away from what I'm feeling because out of regard for you and respect for you, I do not actually want you to come into contact with the authentic me right now. I want you to come in contact with someone who has a grip, who's in control. And so in order to do that, I'm going to admit to you what I am feeling. And I'm not going to put that pressure out on you as a a kind of way of inflicting pain on you, bullying you, making you feel bad, whatever it may be. So I've got a problem, and I think the scriptures have a problem, with our view of sincerity. It's too low. It's too simple. Um what the scriptures are calling us to is a higher level of sincerity that says, let's go for an authenticity where I am not only being true in my statements about what I'm feeling and what I think, I am also showing respect for you, for your dignity, for your feelings. That's a higher level of sincerity and that's part of what is involved with what uh, Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, self-control, all headed by that word love. So there is an element of self-discipline here that I believe the Scriptures call us to. The the reality is uh, fools, myself included, we are authentic when we are foolish. Um, this is one of the, the hardest things as a pastor 
to get a hold of because um, you, you inevitably, um, at different points in ministry, a, a pastor will preach something that he feels very deeply. And so what comes out is this blast of emotion. And I have done this. Uh, and I've had to learn that my emotions are not what you came to hear. You came to hear the Word of God. So, at a certain point, I have learned that I need to step back from what I am feeling so that I don't get in the way of God's Word and confuse and confound His message with my passion. And sometimes that means talking to you in a more calm way than I actually feel. And, yeah, so you're laughing because I think you know that when I let the inner Darth Vader out to play, it's not a good thing. It's not edifying. It's not, it's certainly not a happy experience, but it actually warps the message of who God is and what he says to us. And my passion can do that. And so, is this the authentic me? Are you being real with us, pastor? No, I am not. Because if I did, I would be sinning against you, and you would leave wounded or hardened or both. In fact, what I am attempting to do each Sunday morning and what I would encourage all of you to do in all of your conversations with each other is to say, let's consider, let's pause and ask what is going to build up, not tear down? What is going to strengthen, not increase pressure? And uh, those are two very different things. So when you, when you start to think this way, you're, you've departed from that path of sincere, authentic folly, and now you're on the path of you're kind of fumbling around with the tools that God has given to us and saying, Lord, help me learn this. Help me get this right. A second confrontation with a, an area where our society is delusional is on the issue of anger. Uh, and this is especially descriptive of uh, the election cycle that we've been going through, and uh, we've commented on this many times, no need to rehash it, and because we're all going to see it when we pull up Facebook this afternoon. Anger is everywhere. It's almost like I'm being most authentic when I'm expressing my anger, when I'm relieving that pressure, I'm just shooting it at anybody, any kind of target, but especially the people I don't like, that's when I am being real and authentic. This is what is behind the vogue now of uh, four-letter words in public and in public situations on TV, um, um, on blogs, Tumblr, Twitter. If you want to be authentic, what you have to do is swear. Okay, so let's think about that. 
What that means is that for me to express who I really am and what I really feel is to hurl at you a graphic and vulgar description of something that is degrading to you or to someone else. And that's how I express my authenticity and sincerity. Because all those people who make such an issue about cussing and swearing, they're all just, they're all just stuck up, they're inauthentic, they're not sincere, they're not being who they really are. No, they're not. They're not. And we're in a society now where if you have a small child or an elementary school child who can read, you're going to be walking down the street and coming toward you is going to be a t-shirt with an expletive on it. And that's the society we're living in. How do you like it? Well, I like it fine for me because it means I can be authentic. Yeah, but it's at everyone else's expense. And it means that socially we are breathing in this smog of anger and toxicity and it's poisoning us. And because we're breathing that in constantly, assuming that we just have the right to be our authentic selves, because we're doing that, we're seeing levels of rancor and bitterness and violence in our society that we are not used to. We better get used to them. Because there is only one result from an, a society that has legitimized every kind of expression of anger. And that is a society in which we are all being hazed into abuse. And we think that because we are being abused, therefore we have the right to hurl out that abuse at everyone else. Um, the scriptures here in this passage are basically saying, no, there's another way. There's a higher authenticity. The higher sincerity and the higher authenticity are when we, as forgiven people, step back from what we feel and say, you know... In light of my Savior going to the cross for me, I actually don't have the right to take it out on you. That's not one of my privileges. It's off the table. So the scriptures and our society are at loggerheads on this very basic issue. Third, delusion is perspective. Well, I'm just... My point of view matters. My perspective is as legitimate as your perspective. And so I'm just talking out of what I think. And I'm just sharing my point of view with you. Look at verse 26. Well, let's, let's pick up a verse that I, I skipped here. Verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. This is a verse about anger. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Long fuse settles things down. Um, verse 26 is, I notice, a verse about perspective. The thoughts of the wicked. And just take that in for a moment. The thoughts. That is, the, act, the, the, the ideas, the reflections inside the wicked person's mind, 
not action, not outward speech, just the thoughts. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. So what that verse is saying is, your perspective, my perspective, is a big part of my problem. I need to get out of the confines of my own head. I need to get a larger perspective. I need to find a perspective that allows me to stand in other people's shoes and see what they are looking at. And when I do that, then I suddenly am not quite so full of myself. I have become, after uh, being, uh, and, and still today, a, a very opinionated person, and very much in love with the inside of my own head. <laughs> after having been that way, I have become a collector of perspectives. I love it. When I hear something that comes at me from what seems like left field, I just say, tell me more. Tell me more. I want to hear more about this. Because what I find that does is it takes this narrow point of view that I've got, the inside of my head, and these two slits that I'm looking through. It takes that and it broadens it. And I can actually take in, through conversation, dialogue, Empathy, understanding, all of those things. I can take in what other people see and profit from it, even and especially when I don't agree with them. And when after a period of dialogue and empathy, I still don't agree with them. It still helps me. Why? Because it slows down my anger, gives me a longer fuse, and helps me speak more softly so that I don't stir up anger with harsh words that are judgmental, condemning, bitter, suspicious, all of those things that come from a narrow, bigoted perspective. So these are things that are all contained here in chapter 15. They affect our conversation and our speech. Let me give you a couple of questions just as self-evaluation. I'd like you to think over... Um, a conversation or a conflict or whatever it may be uh, this past week and asked two questions uh, evaluating how you handled that. First of all, did I take some time to look at that conflict from another perspective? Did I step outside my own head and ask, I wonder what's out here? Or did I just rush in with my perspective? If you, when I do this, I almost always find the specific thing I did wrong in a conversation that went poorly. And that helps me, because when I find something specific, then I've got something I can change, and I can work on, and I can build in time to step out of my perspective and ask larger questions. Second question that I find helpful is... In the things that I said, was it my desire to bring calm, to give peace to the other person, or was it my desire to inflict pain? 
right there that tells the whole story. If my desire is to inflict pain, I can usually walk away from those conversations saying, it worked. I inflicted pain. I got some back. Maybe, maybe I got tenfold back. Uh, so Proverbs is, is teaching us stop swimming in our emotions. Get out of that. Take a look at it. Express what is inside. But do not treat words like a relief valve that will relieve the pressure inside of you. For that, we have a loving, powerful, gracious Savior who forgives our sins and says, I've got this. I will provide for you, defend you. I care for you. I hear you. And so you have all of the safety you need to be calm with this other person in your life. In other words, once the heart is settled, the words are gracious and good and nourishing. They're a blessing. I'm going to take a few minutes to answer some questions. If you uh, need to leave right now, uh, this is a good moment just to slip out. I understand uh, that... uh, uh, people will have to do that, but uh, if you are able to stay, that would be a very uh, profitable thing. Okay, first question, uh, referring to Proverbs 16.23, the Bible teaches us to learn and plan how to apply words of wisdom just as we learn how to pray. How can we join being zealous for God's word with words of wisdom. Okay, if I understand where this is coming from, um, this is saying we learn what God says, we love what God says, we have a passion and a zeal for His truth. How do we then put that out there in a way that is going to build other people up and not just proclaim our own zeal and passion? Um, Uh, I think it's an excellent question. The reference here is to Proverbs 16.23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. This is wonderful. The heart of the wise, because of the way he's thinking and reflecting or she is considering what's going on in her life, that heart makes her speech judicious, careful, precise, Edifying, not destructive, and above all else, just, fair to the people around us. So it adds persuasiveness to his lips. So um, when your speech is just, do you have to work so hard to persuade people that you're right? No, justice, fairness just kind of speaks for itself. It doesn't need a whole lot of salesmanship. So I think this verse, in terms of um, the way we interact with our society and the way we express a zeal for God's truth, the way I think we should express that is by exhibiting the character of our gracious God. I think we can do that by asking a lot more questions instead of making a lot more statements. 
Because when you ask questions of people about where they're coming from, what they've been through, uh, what, what they need, when you ask those kinds of questions, you're actually being fairer, more judicious to the person than if you just size them up and say, well, let me shoot this verse at you. And my zeal will just sort of cover up for the fact that I didn't really consider who you are, what you've been through. Well, the scriptures are telling us our zeal will not cover up a lack of love. It just won't. So there, what, what we're working on here in Proverbs 15.1, what this is talking about in 16.23, uh, if those of you who are uh, wanting to share the love of Christ if you wanted to do that most powerfully, I would say these texts are the name of the game. This is what we should be all about because we can exhibit the gracious truth of our Lord Jesus Christ in this way and um, often win people without saying a word because fairness adds persuasiveness. Um, another question here. Um, Verse Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What a great verse. And uh, the thought behind it, as we look out at our nation, our town, our region, the, the struggles that we're going through, it's very easy to get cynical, weary of it all, faint-hearted, lose hope like this is never going to be right, it's never going to go well. Um, This verse is saying that our Lord endured direct hostility from sinners. So he's going to the cross, looking in the eye all of the people who are doing these things to him, including fake trials and crowds heaping abuse on him and the guys driving the spikes into his hands and feet looking at them enduring their hostility all of it and saying I'm doing this to save you that's us if we keep our savior in view then we can express his character we can show it we can display it with uh, the patience and love and goodness that uh, will glorify him. Good questions, good thoughts. Let's pray. Our gracious God, of all the goodness that you've given to us, your word is the best. So we ask you to go with us from this place and that your word would live in our hearts that you would govern us by the power of your spirit and that we would become more and more a source of blessing to the people around us. We ask you to do all of this for your glory and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.